And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. Well, it's time to do the uh, serious Q&A. Uh, it's been a number of weeks since I've done that, and um, I'll try to do a bunch of them. I'm shooting for 20. Margie is going to note the time so that if you see the list of uh, questions in our write-up, then you can go right to that time if you wish. But uh, let me take the the first question, and it, it came in a bunch of forms. It came from young investors. It came from investors in retirement. And the question is, am I recommending the four-fund strategy, or am I recommending the 10-fund strategy, the original ultimate buy and hold, big, small, value growth, U.S. international, REITs, and emerging markets, or the four fund where we only have the big blend and small blend and big value and small value U.S. only. And really, the returns from what I can see over the very long period, I'm talking about the whole 50 years in the fine-tuning tables, and we have fine-tuning tables for all of them, for the S&P 500, for the worldwide 50-50, 70-30, for all value, for the four-fund portfolio. But the bottom line is that for the worldwide, whether it's 70-30 or 50-50 or the or the uh, four-fund combo, uh, when you look at the all-equity portion, the returns are very similar. And in fact, since value investing hasn't been as productive recently, even the all-value portfolio isn't that big of an advantage at this point. Uh, I'm I, So I'm okay either way, whatever's comfortable. But there are going to be times having the internationals in that portfolio. Uh, as, by the way, that was uh, during the 2000 through 2009, the internationals were instrumental in making that a good 10-year period for the worldwide strategy compared to the S&P 500. I think the worldwide strategy outperformed the S&P 500 by about, I don't know, 8% a year or 7% a year. So um, it's really okay to use either one. Uh, With the internationals, if, if, if you're not aware of this, where the internationals become most useful is when the dollar is in decline. And that gives the internationals, whatever they might make, uh, a boost. And there have been times in the past, and more than likely will in the future, when that was the case. I am staying the course using the ten, but I've got to make, I've, I've got to confess, I've got somebody else running the portfolio for me, so I don't have to fool around. With any of the rebalancing, I don't have to worry about the tax loss harvesting. I I don't have to do anything. I just have to call up and ask for money. So uh, 
I don't blame people who don't want to have to deal with uh, rebalancing 10 or 13 different funds, depending on whether you're all equity or a combination of equity and fixed income. For first-time investors, uh, well, I tell you, I could make a case for the four-fund strategy right out of the gate. That would be an easy portfolio to manage if you had those asset classes available to you in a 401k. In an IRA, it would be a piece of cake. Um, with the with, with the the two funds for life, which is obviously another choice for the early investor, you, know, you get a big piece of small cap value there when you're very young, which could be fantastic. On the other hand, if you use the four fund strategy as a young investor, that would certainly, I think, be a very fine long term buy and hold strategy. Of course, if you're not using the two funds for life, you got to make sure you fold the appropriate amount of uh, a fixed income in the portfolio at some point. You have to run your own personal target date portfolio. Question number two. And this question came in response to the article about the comeback portfolio. And the question is, uh, it says, instead of buying the four funds, why not just buy a global all-cap index fund like Vanguard Global Equity? Well, uh, great question, because why fool around with four when you can do it all with one? The, the problem is with a global equity fund, and this would be true of most of them, I can't say all of them, but like in the case of the Vanguard Global Equity Fund, it, it is 48% U.S. equities and 47% international with the balance being in cash. And by the way, I do not like to see a big cash balance because uh, if that is the way the fund is run on a regular basis, it means that's four percent of the portfolio that is uh, uh, that is not making uh, uh, making money. The um, the portfolio, the Vanguard uh, Global Equity portfolio, does not have any small cap. None. Uh, it is. Uh, uh, it does have about 25% in mid-cap, so it's not all large-cap, and that's good. But um, I would say that the, uh, the, the portfolio being uh, basically half in small-cap is, is going to make a substantial difference in return uh, over the long term. Having said that, there's certainly nothing wrong with a global equity portfolio like Vanguard has, but it certainly is not going to expose the investor to those, theoretically anyway, based on the past, more profitable asset classes. And number three, uh, this question is about uh, tax loss harvesting. 
Uh, the Mary Lou says, I haven't heard you talk about the value of judicious tax loss harvesting, which I've done in my taxable portfolio a few times. Perhaps this strategy is more complicated than you care to cover, but I suspect a fair number of us, your followers, do have some losses right now, and isn't a pretty penny saved as good as a penny earned. I like that. So yes, it is a complicated subject, and um, what I'd like to do is to give you a couple of links to some really good, easy reading, um, one by Nerd Wallet and the other by The Balance, uh, both sources, good sources, I think, of articles on topics uh, like this. And you'll see the links to those articles uh, in the uh, description of the podcast. Question number four, actually, the question I get uh, asked most often when I'm uh, talking to friends about investing these days. And uh, the question is basically, how far down do I think this market could go? And of course, I have no idea. Well, I, I, I do have an idea. I do have an idea in that it seems to me uh, that uh, we don't know whether the problem we have is a temporary one that's going to last for a few months or whether this could, in fact, last and dig us into a hole for many months. But it's easy to say this is just as serious as what happened in uh, 2008. Um, could also be just as serious uh, as what happened in the 2000 through 2002 bear market. And in both of those cases, the market went down uh, 50% uh, before it turned around and went back up. Uh, and I don't see any reason why it couldn't do that again. Remember, this happened at what was the end, turned out to be the end, of an 11-year bull market. In fact, it lasted 2,756 days. It started uh, in uh, March, March 10th of 2009 through February 19th of 2020. The gain, the gain over that 11 years, including the reinvestment of dividends, was 529%. And uh, that is a return of 18.3% a year. Now, even without uh, the problems we're having uh, with COVID-19, uh, we would likely have to face a, another bear market after having an 11-year bull market. Remember the market from 1975. Now, this was not a totally uninterrupted run, but from 1975 to 99, the compound rate of return was 17-plus percent. 
and that was followed by a 10-year period during which we had two declines of 50%. So even without these, the problems we know we have, that we still don't quite know what we have, uh, it could easily have, there could have been a bear market that would be down about as much as it is right now. It, it, remember, the average bear market's around 32% loss from the peak. And, um, and so it will not surprise me. And my, my portfolio, I should say our, my wife's, my uh, retirement portfolio that we draw our income from, uh, is built with 50% in, in fixed income uh, with the idea that, that, that we are going to limit our losses to around 20 to 25% in the buy and hold portion of our, of our portfolio. So that's what I'm ready for. And, uh, of course, People didn't say, well, if you think it's going down that far, why don't you get out? And that is the topic of the next question, as a matter of fact. And the question is, doesn't it make sense to use market timing to protect against huge declines? Well... Yes, it does. But the problem is that very few people will maintain them. And I'm going to tell you right now how I feel and the emotions I go through. And I, and I, as most of you know, half of my portfolio is using market timing, trend-following market timing, where when I'm fully invested, I may have amongst the different timing accounts that make up that half, as many as a hundred different positions, each one being timed with with a trend following almost all of them. There's there there is some asset class rotation that's used, but most of it's traditional trend following market timing. And the market People who believe in market timing, as I do for a part of my portfolio, um, we know that it probably is going to pay a huge benefit along the way. And this could be the time. I don't know. I know it was good in 2008, and I know it was pretty good in the 2000 through 2002 period and was great in 1987. But here's the problem. The problem is, as I sit here and the market comes up a lot real fast, it could come up enough to trigger a buy signal. And you've seen how this market can go up or down five or plus percent in a day. And I'm thinking, oh, no, please, I'm... It isn't that I don't want the market to go up. I do want the market to go up. But if it does go up, I want it to keep going up. 
And yes, I want the systems to get buy signals. But when they get a buy signal, I want the market to keep going up. Wouldn't you want that with your market timing account? What you don't want is one of those whipsaws where it turns around and goes back down. And then you have to get out normally with a small loss. But when the market can jump around at 5% or more in a day, you don't know whether that loss is going to be a small one or a larger one. That's the problem with market timing. You have to, you, you, you have to be, be reminded or you are reminded that something bad is about to happen, whether you're in or you're out. Because there is this responsibility to move the money as the market trends in different directions. And that's more than most people can take. And it is interesting because in those few days that the market was just screaming going up, uh, I could proudly tell my wife if I wanted to, hey, we made a lot of money today. But a better thing would have been uh, we made a lot of money today in the 25% of our portfolio that's in equities on a buy and hold basis. In fact, there was w one day that uh, the, the equities made 10%. But I didn't say was, and oh, the other part of that, uh, uh, of that uh, report should be that we pretty much totally missed it in the other part of our portfolio that was sitting safely in cash. You don't want to be safely in cash when the market's going up 10%. Well, I know that's what you have to go through if you're going to have that kind of a strategy. And while I do think it would be wonderful, particularly for retirees, market timing, I've said this many times, is not for the young investors. You know, young investors want to be able to pick up all of the cheap stuff they could get when the market's down and dirty. That's to their advantage in the long term. But for those of us who want to minimize the amount of pain on the downside, that's where the timing becomes useful. And um, I'm, I'm anxious to see how we came out for the month of March because it it was a wild one. And uh, uh, so we'll see shortly. But I can tell you that it's not built for, for very many investors. And I certainly would not to somebody. If somebody wrote to me and they said, Paul, what do you think about buy and hold? Think I should do that for the rest of my life? I could say, boy, if, if you can believe that, I'm absolutely for it. Yeah, go for it. But if you write to me and you say, should I, should I be doing market timing in my account? Well, I can't answer that. I'd have to have about a one-hour conversation with you before I could answer that because I've seen so few people who have been able to stay the course with market timing. Question number six. How can a U.S. non-resident invest using the ultimate buy and hold strategy. And this comes from Migs in the Philippines. And Migs, uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to take a pass uh, on that one. I've looked before 
uh, in uh, countries all around the world, not all of them, but of many countries. And uh, it it just takes an effort that we we don't have time to do right now, maybe at some time in the future, but unfortunately uh, not at this time. Question number seven. I'm a homeschool dad who teaches courses to other high schoolers on personal finance, saving, and investing. I'm always interested to review and use material that may prove beneficial and effective for this age group. Are there specific resources that are available for free or purchase that haven't been developed by Paul and his staff? Uh, I've read about his course at Western U and was curious if any of that material was available as well. Well, Mike, I have, uh, uh, in in the past, I've made arrangements to have the curriculum information passed uh, from the professor at Western to uh, uh, folks with the other universities, but... Uh, it isn't really built for that uh, that age group, 15 to 18. I am going to, though, recommend that you take a look at ngpf.org, N Next Generation Personal Finance, ngpf.org. They have the a most amazing collection of teaching tools in the area of personal finance, saving, investing, uh, from actually K through 12. And uh, it's a nonprofit organization. Uh, they are teaching teachers all over the country at uh, basically no cost to the teachers. And they have regular weekly uh, chat room get-togethers where they're working to help the teachers be more effective with the kids. In fact, they have a mission by 2030, uh, and I don't remember the exact mission, but basically to get uh, personal finance as a one-semester course uh, in every school district in America. So these people are serious not only about about getting the information to the teachers, which would include you, by the way, uh, and and parents and parents. Now, they they aren't going to go out of their way to create to spend. I don't think a lot of time with individual parents, uh, but as a uh, uh, somebody teaching other high school homeschoolers, I think there would be somebody there, Mike, to, to, that would help you. So uh, why don't you give that a shot and do me a favor. Get back to me. Let me know. Email me, paul at paulmerriman.com, and let me know uh, what kind of reception you got. I think you'll be amazed at what they're doing there to uh, uh, to help teachers uh, educate young people. It's it's a it's an amazing organization. Number eight. Question is: Shouldn't U.S. companies that do business internationally give exposure to the international markets? 
In other words, do you have to own international funds in order to have an international holding in your portfolio? Well, the the fact is, is most large cap companies are probably doing some business overseas, some as much as half of their business is overseas. Uh, that's the good news. Uh, and by the way, in the four fund portfolio, uh, I think that when the, the large cap land and the large cap value would certainly have uh, a lot of corporations that are doing business uh, overseas, and certainly some of the small cap companies as well. But when you go to the 10 fund, the ultimate buy and hold strategy, where you actually pick up small cap international value and emerging markets uh, and uh, small cap blend, uh, you're going to get an exposure to asset classes that are very different in terms of their expected return and their risk uh, than you would have uh, as part of a U.S. large cap blend company. I think what, what, what you, when you give up, uh, when you don't have specific international exposure, I'm not sure you really, you, you don't necessarily give up return because when I look at the S&P 500 versus the large cap blend internationally, the returns are very similar, uh, but they come at different times. And, and so you lose that non-correlated, uh, somewhat non-correlated uh, return. And, of course, as I mentioned earlier, the currency differences. Um, but when you have uh, in the four-fund strategy 25% in small-cap value, uh, again, as I said in another comment earlier, uh, you're going to have about the same amount of small cap value uh, in that four fund strategy as you will uh, in the 10 fund portfolio. Uh, it, it will uh, just not be quite as, as diversified. And number nine, I enjoy your site. I have a Fidelity 401k and am in process of implementing two funds for life. I settled on SLYV for my small cap tilt, but it is an ETF and I can't do automatic investing. I came upon VSMVX, but it's a $5 million minimum. Uh, and uh, what this, uh, what Kelly would like to know is what small cap value would I recommend? And it's a new one, Kelly. It's a small one, but it's also a small cap value index out of Fidelity. F is in Frank, or maybe I should say F is in Fidelity. I, S as in Sam, V as in Victor, X. That's the Fidelity Small Cap Value Index Fund. I think it's going to be a, a, a really good long-term hold but it is brand new, and uh, but it is an index, and uh, their uh, their uh, expense ratio is very very low for a small cap value index. Here's an interesting challenge from Chad. 
He says, have you performed the calculations for the ultimate buy and hold strategy without any rebalancing? Consider it a one-time deposit set and forget investment. I'm curious how this changes the data since it may be useful for those of us planning to stick with a 100% equity strategy for an extended period of time. Now, what I know we have not looked at that with the uh, uh, ultimate buy and hold strategy, but I can I can tell you this, Chad, that if I took the four fund combo and I go all the way back to 1928 and I assume that I put a hundred dollars each in large cap blend, large cap value, small cap blend, and small cap value, that the total with all three of those never rebalancing was $14.4 million. The biggest part of that, of course, was the small cap value. If I... If I put $400 into the four-fund combo, and that would have been rebalanced every year, that would have led to 11 million point two, 11.2 million. So that difference, by the way, is the difference between about a 12% compound rate of return and 118 so the the difference wasn't as great as you might have expected but there was a difference and uh i sometimes wonder whether it is worth the cost of rebalancing and whatnot uh, to do that the the problem is if you don't rebalance you're going to end up with a very large position, more than likely, in small cap value, which would be as that child got older, would make it a much riskier portfolio, particularly when they're into their 50s or their 60s. But uh, but there is a difference, and it, it, uh, it probably isn't as much percentage-wise as one would have expected. Number 11. This was a very long question, a very detailed question. I'm not going to read it, but I am going to give you just enough background to know, number one, that this person is worth many millions of dollars, is trying his best to take all the right steps to take care of his daughter and her husband uh, and, uh, and, and do all the right things about Social Security and the SECURE Act, and, um, and, he, and he's really concerned. He's also, by the way, a very frugal guy. I did talk to him because I wanted to do some digging and figure out what he should be doing in terms of getting getting advice. One thing I know for sure, I'm not the one to give it to him. The second thing I know for sure, 
he can afford to pay somebody for a few hours of of analysis to figure out what he should do. And uh, and I thought maybe I could help in that regard. So I did call him. He included the phone number, and and uh, once in a while I'll pick up the phone and call people, and I did. And um, and here's what we found out. He has a son-in-law who uses a DFA advisor. Now, this guy, he's frugal. He is never going to pay for an advisor unless he feels he's losing his ability to make good decisions. That happens to most everybody at some point, but it doesn't mean that he can't track down somebody that would help him. And here's what I know about that DFA advisor. Uh, If the son-in-law is using the DFA advisor and the son-in-law goes to the DFA advisor and says, "Um, my father-in-law would like to meet with uh, a CPA slash tax advisor or even a CPA and and an attorney that's got both backgrounds would be great because he wants to make some maybe some complex decisions, estate planning decisions here. But that DFA advisor, because they generally do work with larger accounts, would probably know somebody who could give this gentleman who wrote to me some good advice. And the key is, how do you find somebody to, to, to give you this kind of advice on an hourly basis? And sometimes you got to find somebody who knows somebody. But any good DFA advisor is going to have worked with some CPA slash attorney uh, along the way that could, uh, uh, could give this kind of advice. Oftentimes when you turn to your friends, for advice, they'll, you know, a referral, they'll give you a name, but they may not really know how to judge the value of that professional's work, and a good DFA advisor should be able to. And number 12, I am a Canadian, and I have listened to dozens of sound investing podcast episodes so far, and I like the content. Well, thank you, Michael. I think I understand the principles behind small versus large and value versus growth. My question is simple. Could you please explain how index funds are built regarding asset classes? Uh, He goes on to ask, is it just a formula that is followed by the fund? Is there room for human choice? Uh, you got the idea. Well, let me give a quick answer, but then I'm going to give you a link to a paper, a white paper that's been done that if you really want to understand how, how a, a unique uh, index portfolio or asset class portfolio was built, I think you'll find it fascinating. But in many cases... There is an existing fund or asset class, Russell 1000, Russell 2000, S&P 500, 
uh, S&P 600. There are a lot of these uh, asset classes that are defined by an existing index that has been built by some large organization. On the other hand, in some cases, uh, indexes are not really a specific index that is is used by many different companies, but rather is unique to a particular organization. Dimensional Fund Advisors has been putting together since uh, the early 90s, uh, maybe even into the 80s, but they were putting together portfolios of asset classes that did not have a specific percentage for each individual company inside of that particular asset class, but would simply over time buy large blocks of stocks to represent uh, companies, but without a specific need to have X number of shares of this company and X of another, made it much more efficient to have the freedom to kind of build it as they were able to buy particularly large blocks of, uh, of, of funds or companies below market because they were buying uh, large blocks in, a, in a, uh, an asset class that they, the companies are not very liquid, so they got very good prices. So th- they weren't required to look specifically like a well-known index. But in the case of uh, Avantis, uh, this is a new family of ETFs, and uh, these are people who came out of the DFA organization, and uh, DFA has had only mutual funds, not exchange-traded funds. But these folks have established funds that are really meant to be very like the the work that DFA does with their mutual funds. But I think you'll find it really quite interesting for those of you who want to understand how an ETF that isn't, in fact, replicating a specific number of uh, specific companies, but is, in fact, replicating an asset class that they want to look like. So uh, if, if you look under... Uh, number 12 in the list of topics, you'll find the link uh, to the, uh, the white paper that, uh, that Advantis has done. Number 13. This is started out as a question. And the question was, was really, uh, how do I get my money invested that's been sitting in cash for years? And uh, it certainly um, doesn't help that we've had this recent nosedive in the market uh, because that calls to question how much bigger that nosedive might be. But uh, he has come to the conclusion that he does want to invest uh, either with the two-fund or four-fund approach. And uh, he does want to invest with low-cost index funds, but uh, what's keeping him up at night is WHEN, W-H-E-N in caps. I picked up the phone and called this fellow because uh, I wasn't sure that his question was 
everything he needed to know. And it turned out, and really nice, nice young guy, but it turned out that one, he's been a really good saver. He and his wife, together, they have saved a lot of money. Uh, two, it turns out that he can find reasons not to invest. Remember, there's always list A, the good news, always list B, the bad news. So if you're afraid of the market, or you can, you can always find the reasons to be afraid. And it's not like he hasn't gotten any money invested. He has. But when I asked him what rate of return he needs to get where he wants to go, I wasn't even sure that he really had a number of where he wanted to go in order to retire. And so uh, he's frugal, doesn't need a lot to live on. And we came up with a number of $2 million. Uh, And that was without him having to figure out how much he needed. But he did say in conversation that if he had to retire right now, he could. He would just learn how to live on that, which means that um, $2 million is, let's say, three times what he's got right now. But what he didn't know is at the rate that he is saving, he doesn't need to take much risk. He needs to probably be 60-40. And, and, and so it made the situation much easier because he already had a fair amount of money in equities. But I think he was believing that he was going to have to kind of go all the way, figure out a way to get all the way in the market. And um, so what we concluded was he could dollar cost average in over a period of time. Uh, and he wasn't going to have to dollar cost average in very much because he agreed with me he'd be willing to to take a more conservative stance to get to retirement. He's got quite a few years, and and um, it, it could be the market will be terrible for the next uh, uh, twenty years, let's say. But but the bottom line is. His problem really wasn't how to get invested so much as how much he really needed to invest. And I think for people who have a tendency to look and 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 you know find the things that are challenges with the market that could that could could somehow jump up and bite you when you have a lot of fear of those things that it may be with some aggressive saving that you could really be more conservative. You don't need to have all your money in equities. And so what I hope that came out of that conversation was, one, that he could dollar-cost average in. There's no big hurry. And two, that he doesn't have to have as much equity as he thinks he needs. So that's a challenge to those of you who may be trying to figure out how to maintain an exposure to equities that's really very uncomfortable when you could get where you need to go without so much inequities. And I'm not recommending no equities, but I think even a first-time investor, well, I think you could make a lot more money than this if you have the risk tolerance. But 
Rich Buck and I, we once wrote an article probably 20 years ago called, um, I think it was Two Funds for Life. <laughs> and the two funds, one fund was 60% in inequities. Actually, it wasn't one fund, but it was a position of 60% in equities, 40% in fixed income from age 20 all the way through. And if 60-40 served you well from age 20 to 65 or 70, I wouldn't be surprised to find out you kept it that way until the end of your life. So you don't have to be all equities. Uh, Number 14. Hi, my name is Trent, and I've been working hard to set up a Roth IRA for my eight-year-old son. You can't even believe how happy I was to read that. I don't know what the son has done to earn the money to be able to set up a Roth IRA, but I'm thrilled he's doing it. He says, I have found none of the brokerages offer quite the same great experience and ease of use that M1 does. Uh, He says, I love that M1 is free, has fractional shares, reinvest dividends, and you can create a pie for varying investments you would like to make and can set it all up on a weekly reoccurring schedule, etc. He he wants M1, but M1 does not do custodial IRAs. And I don't think they're about to for quite a while. But... Here's the good news. Schwab does. Schwab will set up a custodial IRA. And Schwab has, it won't be perfect, but Schwab has gives access to low-cost index funds uh, with no minimums. And uh, I think that might just be great as they start. I mean, even if it takes... 10 years before you're able to get into exactly what you want, the fact is you will have found a home in an equity portfolio that would serve that eight-year-old child pretty doggone well if the market does well. I mean, that's the way it works, right? So uh, I I recommend you get a hold of uh, get a hold of the folks at Schwab and and uh, and I think it's great you're able somehow to set up a Roth IRA for an eight-year-old child. Congratulations. Number 15. Thank you for what you do. I'm a big fan of the website and podcast. Well, thank you, Robert. I appreciate that. And my wife and I both are six-figure income earners. We've paid off everything but our house and max out our 401ks. I'm trying to figure out our best options for increased savings above and beyond our emergency fund. And so what he's looking for is where do you put your long-term savings? Well, assuming that a person has uh, an asset allocation that includes some fixed income as well as some equity, uh, you would want to have uh, the fixed income then in the tax deferred, and you'd want to have the equity in the tax taxable. So what you want is you want to to be in the most tax efficient instruments that you can. Um, 
there are there are tax managed funds now ETFs today uh, may be as as tax managed if not even better tax management than the tax managed mutual funds that have been on the market for years but ETFs as you probably know are relatively tax efficient and uh, what you would want to do would be to uh, use the most tax-efficient among them. Chris Pedersen has put together a portfolio for a taxable account using uh, the ETFs, and those are available at Fidelity or Vanguard on a commission-free basis. I suggest that... uh, if you haven't looked at his work, go to the, our homepage at uh, paulmerriman.com and you can take the link to ETFs. And there are some articles that Chris has written there, but, but also if you go to the portfolios, the best-in-class portfolios, scroll down and you will find first tax-deferred, then you'll see an all-value, but then you come to the taxable uh, best-in-class portfolio recommendation. You're going to have to decide whether you have uh, the risk tolerance for this money to lose half of your money, and if you're not willing to lose half of your money, you shouldn't be in the all-equity portfolio, but you might be okay maybe for the moderate risk where you can combine some tax-exempt bonds along uh, with equities. Kind of depends on when you're going to need the money. Okay, and number 16. Uh, is there a plan to create the equivalent taxable and emergency mutual fund list for fidelity? Um, and he's referring to lists or recommendations that would be the equivalent of uh what we have with the Vanguard Mutual Funds. Uh, That is not on the to-do list, but I do think if you looked at the, for example, the emergency uh, fund recommendation, you wouldn't have much trouble finding uh, an equivalent uh, at the Fidelity family. In fact, you know the fidelity people are are well known for their uh, quality service and i think if you uh said to fidelity somebody on the phone look i i would like to have the equivalent at fidelity for the uh, short term investment grade bond fund at vanguard i think they'll back bend over backwards to help you give give that a try robert number 17 I've been using your ultimate buy and hold strategy for a few years now across my various accounts, both taxable and tax deferred. When it comes to asset allocation, I look at the complete picture and put the most appropriate assets in their respective accounts. So the individual accounts may look very different from one another, but when taken as a whole, They are reflective of my desired asset allocation. From there, he goes on to ask about our bond recommendations. And since he's trying to take the whole portfolio into consideration, 
Is there a different way to select the bonds that would be different than what we recommend? In other words, we have recommendations for taxable accounts. We have recommendations for tax-deferred accounts. What we don't have is a recommendation uh, that would would consider an entire portfolio. Now, where this can become important is with equities, for example. Uh, if you're having an advisor at a firm like the Merriman Company, and lots of advisors do this, my old company would build a portfolio that the different asset classes would be held in tax-deferred than taxable accounts so that you still get this one big asset allocation across all of the accounts, but that you get the most tax-efficient investments inside of the taxable account and the least tax-efficient inside of a tax-deferred. Now, we can't do that uh, with the work that we're doing on our site. Uh, But what I can recommend is uh, if you get a copy of Larry Swedrow's last book, it's entitled Your Complete Guide to a Successful and Secure Retirement. And in that book, uh, Larry focuses Uh, on uh, the entire portfolio, if you will, and has some suggestions. Certainly uh, worth the read. By the way, it's a terrific uh, book. I I read it and found over 500 things I thought were meaningful uh, to uh, investors in terms of making their uh, portfolio and their financial life better. Number 18, I uh, like this uh, This one. Uh, this comes from Josh, and uh, Josh, Josh says, I found the analysis behind your ultimate buy-and-hold portfolio very compelling. I'm considering adopting it as a strategy to begin my investing career at age 27 uh, with an approximate age, retirement age of 65. I would love to see some figures for the rolling returns of this portfolio since 1970 over various uh, periods, 10, 15, 20, and 30 years. It would be helpful to see what the average return was for any 20-year period in the past 50 years. Well, we haven't done that very thing, Josh, but I can tell you this. We have in the past, and we will in the coming weeks, uh, created uh, pages of returns based on putting away in the beginning uh, $1,000 in 1970, and then each year increasing the amount of that uh, contribution. And then you'll see on the table how, uh, how that, what that would have produced over a period of years. And it's real easy to compare where you would have been with any of these portfolios from one point in time to, to another. You could pick any any two times, whether 10 years apart or 20 years apart, but you'll, you'll be able to see the, 
the percentage impact uh, for the same amount of money going into the uh, uh, into those investments again from uh, 1970 through it was 2018 and and we will shortly have it uh, available through 2019. Uh, I'll include a link uh, in the uh, in the information on this podcast uh, with question number 18. Aaron would like to know on number 19 here. He says, um, I wanted to write to inquire why small cap value seems to be uh, hit the hardest in the most recent decline. Uh, Since small cap value has been underperforming for so long now, I would have assumed that large cap growth would have been suffering more. Uh, Can we assume this is in part because of the total market indexes that a lot of people are now completely sold on as their main or only holding? Is indexing ruining small cap values chances of ever being on top and dominating again? Well, those are great questions, Aaron, and the answer is that I don't know. It is... uh, it is the, the nature uh, of the market. Uh, it is interesting. You could look at this one day at a time. Uh, at, at, uh, uh, at Market Watch uh, and other Morningstar, several different sites, at the end of the day, you can see what returns different size companies had that day. And you'll be interested. Some days you'll you'll notice that that uh, growth has done well in the large cap uh, group, but done poorly in the small cap group, and uh, or the same with value. So y- you might just out of interest uh, notice how different those returns can be. Now then, the question is. Why were they that different for that one day? Because if you annualize that difference, it would be a huge difference. Uh, and yet, that's the that's the way the market is. And so, uh, my view and and my hope is that we're talking about these premiums uh, happening over the long run. And will small cap value uh, ever be at the top again? Uh, from everything I know about the past, I believe it will. But it doesn't mean that it has to, or it could be a very long time before it is king of the hill once again. Small cap uh, was underperforming for 30 years, large cap. And when Dr. Fama was asked about about the difference and and how could it be that small cap could underperform for 30 years and Dr. Fama's response was well you're just not very patient are you and it turned out that was in 1999 it turned out that if you just waited 10 more years small cap made up for all that past underperformance and outperformed once again well then in the last 10 years, that has not been the case. So I think that's just the nature of the beast, unfortunately. 
And while our lives are relatively short, you know, 10 years to the market's not a big deal. Well, at age 76, 10 years in the market is a really big deal to me. So uh, I don't know the answer to your question, Aaron. And number 20, how often do target date funds rebalance their allocations? For example, once a year, quarterly, or something different? Do they take advantage of the major daily movements in the markets? Well, basically, at least from everything I know, they, basic, they basically rebalance on approximately a daily basis. As new money comes in, I assume, I assume, I don't know this for, for a fact, Jeff, but I assume that if a particular part of the portfolio has charged ahead, that they're going to then put the new money into something that has been lagging. In other words, they're not going to try to to overweight an area that has been more profitable recently. That would be a form of market timing. So I, I don't think that they do anything to take advantage of daily movements in the markets, uh, although I am sure they are watching and investing in a way that it adjusts the portfolio to the exposure to risk that they're, in essence, uh, contracted for. And and by the way, that is one reason why if you built your own target date fund, for example, you could look at what's inside of the Vanguard target date fund, and you would find a total market U.S., a total market international, and a couple of bond funds. And um, you could own exactly the same thing, but only rebalance once a year. That would lead to, from what we know about the past, that would lead to a slightly higher return than if they're rebalancing every day or every week or every month. So uh, that is, by the way, another reason that it might make sense for people to, in essence, build their own target date fund. Well, I really appreciate those of you who made it all the way uh, to the end. And uh, I did forget to mention early on that uh, I'll be on a uh, Silicon Valley AAII online uh, presentation on April 11th. Uh, I'll present for an hour and a quarter, and Chris Pedersen will present for an hour and a quarter. If you want information on that online event, uh, you can go to paulmerriman.com and uh, it'll be under live events there. Uh, plus, we'll have a link to that information uh, in the uh, copy about this podcast. So thanks for your patience and sitting. If you did sit through the whole thing, I'm amazed, but uh, congratulations. And next week, I will be talking about variable distributions. 
That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.